Hello and welcome to another episode of General Nerd Sense, the podcast from Shieldwall Productions, where we talk about anything and everything generally nerdy, hence the name, ahaha. And on this episode, we have myself, John. And Jacob. Yes, and continuing with the theme of tabletop role-playing, we and focusing on tabletop role-playing character archetypes, which started off with the bombastic barbarians, we are continuing on with that... What will be an ongoing little mini-series, in the zone series, yeah. topic mini-series. On how to roleplay character archetypes, and archetypes of common classes you find often in roleplaying settings. Yes, the key hallmarks of tabletop roleplaying, and this episode we'll be featuring the Paladin. There is arguably not a more common, you know, character archetype in any D&D saying, because from my experience, you're always going to have the paladin. At least one. Yeah. It's as common as, you know, putting butter on bread. Yes. Or bread in a toaster. Yes. I mean, paladins are cut and dry, probably one of the most common characters people like to play overall. Yes, and strangely enough, they share a little bit of commonality with the barbarian. They're not nearly as two-dimensional as one might think. They are not yeah. these... Prissy, pretentious, goody two-shoes purveyor, do, goody two-shoes purveyor of good and all things pure. As we've talked about before, lawful good does not mean lawful nice. Not at all. Yeah, and that's that's the thing about paladins. They often are only played as the good, the good doers who you know only want to like be the paragons of you know goodness and niceness. Yes, which. Which isn't to say that's the wrong way to do yeah. it. It's just, well, it's been done to death. Yeah. And it's not to say it's a bad way of doing it. It's just that there's so many more options. Yeah. Now, with a little bit of history with Paladins. Paladin is from, it became popular right along the 15th century from the history about, about which it's written, which is 12th century France. And in 12th century France, you have Charlemagne. Yes. One of the greatest kings of the Middle Ages. The first of the Holy Roman Emperors. Sort of, yeah. I mean, first of the true French kings. The Holy Roman Empire, like... Charlemagne was the founder of the Holy Roman Empire, sir. Sort of. I mean, yeah, he it, was! In his death, it created the Holy Roman Empire. He was crowned the Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope. Yeah, but the HRE and Charlemagne's reign are two very different things. Whatever, we're getting... Fine. <laughs> Fine, 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 fine. I mean, with, with Charlemagne's death, because Charlemagne was the king of France, you had a, like... He unified the Frankish nobility under a single monarchy. Yeah. The Holy Roman Empire was kind of a shit show that happened. Yes. After, because we're, we're getting off talking. Whatever. Paladins. Paladins. So he had 12 knights. Yes. And they were called paladins, because yes. paladin is derived from the French term paladin, which means a champion of a cause. Yes. So there's a bunch of different ways to play the paladin character. I really break them down to, you know, you have your hedge knight paladins, which are your Don Quixote types. Yes. You have your, like, royal paladins who are kind of political figures, and, you know, those are your uppity, you know, self-pretentious nightmares yes. inflated to say yeah in a word you have your zealous paladins which are i i kind of count those as like a crusader type yes. where they are devoutly religious to whatever system in your king arthur yeah 
Then you have your black knights and your white knights. Yes. And there's quite a bit of wiggle room within those character archetypes. Of course, you have a lot of variations and mixtures of the two, but uh, of the of the five. But I'd say that you know generally you're going to be playing some variation of one of these five. Indeed. One of the ones I like quite a bit um, that isn't played all too often is the Hedge Knight. Really? Yeah. The Hedge Knight, it's interesting. So, in medieval times, you had you had the problem of Hedge Knights, which... Problem? They, they were interesting. Uh-huh. So, more or less, it's a person who has knightly armor and rides around who might very well be a knight or might very well be bullshitting. And you just kind of won't know. And that's the thing. Value, huh? Yeah. Um, like, Crusader Kings 2 does this excellently. Like, there, you'll get hedge knight things coming every couple years. And it'll be like, your your marshal found a hedge knight. Do you want to, like, imprison him for pretending to be a knight? And possibly lose, you know, piety that he might be a knight? Or do you want to make your... Uh, Legitimize him. Yeah. Mm. So... They, they exist in this very interesting ground in the Middle Ages of they could very well be a knight who might have some form of like what we now see as like PTSD or something who just ride around kind of a little crazy Don Quixote type. Yes. Or they might just be someone who's trying to who found knightly armor perhaps off like a dead corpse in the woods. Yes. Put it on and is now claiming to be a knight for like for political gain or. Or simply perhaps because they truly believe in what the. Yeah. E- idea ideals of a knight embodies and want to do their best to embody it yeah they want to they're just they just want to do some good in an otherwise world gone mad and that's part of the reason like i like hedge knights as well is they they're a bit more of the roaming type yes so it'd be a lot more well placed within a group of murder hobos than (laughs) You know, a lot of the other sure. night classes. Right. And it's kind of fun to play because you can play it as either the crazy or is, you know, the more, you know, aspiring. Idealistic. Yeah. Now, I didn't mean to say that with any sort of disdain in my voice. I apologize. There's nothing wrong with being idealistic. Especially as a knight. Yeah. That's kind of the point. Now, you also have, like, your royal paladin types, which are your your statesmen. Yes. They they generally only see battle when the state goes to war, and then it's more to pay dues. Yes, they make an appearance and they fight other people of similar station. Yeah. And only until one of them's like, okay, I've had enough. Yeah, they... Rarely to the death. They really... They they take prisoners, they ransom off prisoners, as is common in the Middle Ages. Yes, they are rather stuffy. Yeah. But there's a lot of interesting room for that, but we'll get that to that in a bit. Interestingly enough, I like the royal paladins on kind of, if you relate them a little bit to the Roman legionary heads. Sure, the centurion uh, commanders and such. Yeah, because a lot of times the reason you would stay in the military and take part in so many military campaigns is to be a Roman senator. You had to be a successful military. Indeed. Yeah. And that's the thing in our own history, speaking of Roman Mm -hmm. military, uh, in ages past, monarchs, minor lords, whatever, they had to have some degree of military experience and be somewhat and be reasonably militarily competent in order to be taken seriously in their station. You had to be a true leader of men, and there was at the time no more 
defined definitive way of being a leader of men than being a leader of uh, warrior men. Yeah. Being a leader of warriors and soldiers, mm-hmm. being able to command competently on the battlefield and make smart tactical choices not to not lead your troops astray. Yeah. To ensure victories. Sure that you will keep capable of thinking clearly and calmly and rationally and staying steps ahead of things. Yeah. Considering the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Now, kind of continuing with breaking down each class, so, you know, you have your zealous paladins. These are going to be kind of your best friends with any religious leaders or inquisitors in your world. Right. And they're going to be very adamant about a knight of, like, the church, a knight to defend, you know, whatever. Or even a knight of the land, if you were looking, not necessarily a medieval setting, but mm-hmm. we're looking at a futuristic setting like 40K, yep. where space marines are a great example of this. Yeah. They are 100% your zealots. Yep. And then you also kind of, you know, continuing with the, the trend, you also have your white knights, who are... Those are the ones you see most commonly people play as. The characters that want to do no harm and want to be the... Paragons of altruism. Yeah, they want to be the nicest, goodest people that ever existed on the land. But again, they forget. Lawful good does not mean lawful Lawful nice. And then lastly, taking a little bit of a step away from a lot of that... the opposite direction. Yeah, you, you have your Black Knights, which... Or typically characterized as having black armor or, you know, darker, grayer armor. And it's more to kind of represent a fall from, you know, the... Fall from grace. Yeah, fall from purity or your virtuous paladin skills. Yes. And typically, I mean, I wouldn't argue that black knights are on the evil side of it, but I'd say chaotic, uh, lawful, like chaotic or uh, not lawful, I mean... uh, chaotic good or lawful neutral yes where they they haven't you know fully decided to continue investing in the virtues of you know what you typically find in a paladin but right you know kind of take up their armor to wrong uh to fix a wrong or you know or even on the other you know on another note they understand that doing what is Right does not mean doing what is uh, morally altruistic. Yeah. They can definitely fit into the lawful evil archetype. I'll point to yeah. Darth Vader as an example as a, of a black knight. Jedi knight, he was a Jedi knight. He sure became mm-hmm. a Sith Lord, but they're still knights of another... They're just still the dark, the black Jedi knights. Yeah. Um, he was definitely on the lawful side because he was fighting for the Empire, but he was technically on the bad side, so he's lawful evil. Mm-hmm. Black knights can 100% occupy the space of lawful evil. Yeah. Because they will do... Things that are not necessarily on the morally altruistic and up and up, but they will do things within the bounds of the law and what is, uh, what they are legally al- allowed to do. Mm-hmm. They'll stay within the bounds of the confines of the law, but they won't ne- but they won't be particularly nice. Yeah, and I mean they won't do necessarily right things. And there's a lot of ways to play black knights too, because I mean, following the original definition, a champion of a cause. Yes. Doesn't mean all, the cause always has to be good. Indeed not. Uh, a lot of times from history, you see knights donning black armor for very specific purposes. Like, I know the Knights Hospitaller had black pauldrons. Yes. And the Knights Hospitaller were a more militarized section of, like, the Holy Orders of Knights. Yes, they were uh, weaponized healers. Yeah. They were warrior healers. They were 
as opposed to the warrior monks that were the Knights Templar, the Knights Hospitaller were the medical personnel. Yeah. But they were combat medical personnel, mm -hmm. combat medics. You know, they could administer aid on the, after the battle was over, and they would also provide medical care to those in need at their chapter houses. Yeah. I don't know what the, where the black armor comes into that. Sorry, go on. Uh, I mean, they typically were not the nicest of factions. No. And typically the black is, you know, to either symbolize death or repentance. Sure. And the thing that if you're, if you're basing your paladin off the stereotypical knight, it's very important to understand that historically speaking, uh, your average knight in quote-unquote training armor had a lot more in common with uh, Tony Soprano than he did Lancelot. Yeah. They were, historical knights were, they weren't very nice. No, they weren't. They, I mean, if you take a look at feudalism, it, there's not a whole lot of wiggle room in feudalism. No. You have to maintain your role if everyone else, if you expect everyone else to maintain their role. Right, and knights were either sent to collect taxes on behalf of the lord or to rough up, or to trouble in a rival lord's holdings. Or raise men for war. Levies or, or whatever. Yeah. And if the peasants had been a little bit lax in the uh, tithes of taxes, then they would go and make examples. Yeah. They, they would collect taxes, but they would not be gentle about it. No. Knights, historically speaking, were... They uh, kind of looked like mafiosos. Honestly. Yeah. Honestly. But it is important to remember that your knight has to be chivalrous. Yes. Even if you are playing like a lawful evil knight, like black knight. There they, are rules. There are rules. And that is a very important thing about knights in general is, you know, they, they have their own rules of conduct. And it doesn't matter if you're good or evil or what side you're on. If you're a knight, you are expected to follow rules. Yes. Now, a lot of times people bring up chivalry and a lot of people... You know, it's kind of a common colloquial on what it means, but most of the book of chivalry lies on how to honorably fight and how to act. It's martial etiquette. Yeah. So if you if you take a look, um, and I, I kind of want to bring this up because it's important for paladins overall. Yes. So the code of chivalry kind of breaks down into a couple different topics, and then they have a couple side topics. Right. Subtopics, I mean. Um, the first like topic is fair play yes such as you know you never attack an unarmed foe you never charge an unhorsed opponent you never attack from behind avoid cheating and avoid torture now these rules specifically only apply to other people of similar station yeah only applies to other knights and that's a big thing is if you are charging down like a peasant you know like an armed peasant group in in war, like men at arms. Always who, fair game. Yeah, they're they're, they're the common peasantry. Funny enough, if you look at the wars in the Middle Ages, there were very few knight casualties. Yes, it was kind of a big no-no for knights to kill other knights, and it was a huge no-no for peasants to kill other knights. That's why there was such a stigma against like pikemen and stuff, and when pikes started getting used because Pike, they pikes were and bows specifically. Yeah, the I will. I'm glad you brought this up. The historical Battle of Agincourt mm -hmm. was as widely considered be, to be the death of chivalry because it was during, I believe, the Hundred Years' War yep. between Britain and France. I'm sure our British and French listeners know this history quite a, a bit better than I do in terms of raw detail. But at the Battle of Agincourt, it was the English king. They were kind of on the back foot. Um, it's King Richard, I think. I don't know if it was Richard Lionheart. I don't even know if it was King Richard. But they were on the back foot. The French kind of 
had outmaneuvered them, and King Richard and the British army was uh, not doing so hot in terms of supplies, and there's a fair bit of dysentery. So the numbers were pretty de depleted. Uh, they didn't have a whole lot of knights compared to the French forces, and they were still outnumbered either way, peasants and knights combined. But what they did have a lot of was bowmen. Mm -hmm. The king, the British king, made the conscious choice to say, "Archers, you shoot at any foes, knight or peasant alike. They are all enemies of Britain, and if we are to be victorious, they must all fall." This was a big no-no, and he also specifically, prior to the battle, like when they were dodging, trying to get back to Britain, whenever they make camp and they would have time to train, he would specifically teach the peasants how to kill a knight. You drag him off the horse and. Two peasants would, ped, would pin his arms and two with legs, and then the fifth would take a knife or a dagger or some such and go for the uh, less protected part of the knight's armor, which would be typically the armpits, armpits, groin, groin neck, depending on the depending armor. on the armor. But that was a very big no-no because peasants aren't supposed to kill knights. Funny enough, that's where we actually get the middle fingers because during mm. a lot of uh, during a lot of the British civil wars of the time, they would raise their index finger and their middle finger. Those to the opponent's two, side. Because, because those are the two prominent bow fingers. The yep. bowstring drawing If figures. they caught you, they'd cut them off. Mm -hmm. And I believe the French adopted it too because of the crossbows. Yep. And their trigger assembly there. Um, but the Battle of Edgecourt was won by the British because of the horrendous casualties inflicted by the common peasant archers. Yep. Longbowmen. And that was the death of Schiller because the codes of chivalry were completely abandoned by the British side. And it was... Uh, well, the French were rather upset about it for a variety of reasons, but also but predominantly because, well, the code of chivalry was forsaken mm -hmm. but and i mean just a little historical fun fact typically too with medieval battles if um you know you caught a knight they would fight until they would surrender or give up they would yes. you know it was rarely 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 ever to the death and it was also generally frowned upon even if it was to the death yeah, like, you should have found a better way to resolve this. Basically, you, you fight let, until you, one side, you know, gives up, and then you take them as a political prisoner. You put them under house arrest. You give them some nice quarters, and then you ransom them back to the kingdom. Yes, and the, that he came from. More often than not, they'd actually become friends in the process to a degree. Yeah. Like I understand you took me prisoner, but it's a nice place you've gotten when the war's over. I'd like to come visit. Yeah, and you know, make political dealings in the meantime. And. It's strange to us now, like... It seems strange to us now, yeah. yes, because, well, for a variety of reasons. Um, now, the next topic is nobility. Um, for knights, now, this is a very important thing. You must exhibit self-discipline, show respect to authority, obey the law, administer justice, protect the innocent, and respect women. They struggle with that second, that second to last one a little bit, you know, protecting the innocent with the whole... Yeah. Uh, going full soprano on the local peasantry but i mean you know, they weren't necessarily innocent they withheld taxes that were due to their lord and that's the thing is like if you were this this kind of raised from like the viking raids and stuff you know you had to have your knights and precursors to such go out and protect your lands protect the people who were vikings are actually directly responsible for the creation of knights i hate to break i actually i take no small amount of joy in breaking that to you dear listeners Knights were, at least in England and, and Europe and the world, were developed specifically because you needed to have heavy mounted cavalry to counter these fast moving raiders that could strike anywhere due yeah. to the nature of their ships. You needed to have a force that could address it quickly and get there in good time mm -hmm. and do a shitload of damage with not a whole lot of numerical superiority, if any. So, that, so enter the knight. Yep. Heavily armored, mounted. Now, when the Viking Age ended, 
and I just didn't have a whole lot to do. Nope. So enter their more Tony, their more mafioso protection money, records, yeah, whatever. Yeah, so then again, you know, with how feudalism worked overall, you it was it. it was very rigid. Yes, you had to you had a place. It was if you look at like India's caste system, yes. it was, it's very similar to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the next point, which is one of the biggest parts of the Book of Chivalry, is valor. Yes, as a paladin, you need to be very exceptionally, exceptionally valorous. Mm-hmm. So the sub points of that are, you know, you must exhibit courage in word and deed, avenge the wrong, defend the weak and innocent, fight with honor, never abandon a friend, ally, or noble cause. Indeed not. Those are probably the most important aspects of playing a paladin, at least on the lawful side. Yeah. Black Knight, notwithstanding. Yeah. But again, they, they mean championing causes that they believe to be noble and just. Mm-hmm. That just maybe not doesn't align with the status quo of the rest of the world. That doesn't necessarily pre- preclude them from following that those particular tenets right there. Yeah. And, I mean, that's the thing, is with paladins, they, similar to barbarians, they are a very warlike class. So, yes. if if you have a non-courageous paladin, you basically have... Brave Sir Robin. Yeah. Brave, brave Sir Robin, ran he away. bravely ran away. I didn't! Oh, I didn't! Yeah. And with with valor as as an important part you know it's important to keep in mind that you can still be smart about your actions but you have a knight has to first and foremost remember that his actions have consequences yes he very much has a keen eye on bigger picture thinking yeah and as i was saying you know the feudal system is very rigid if a, a higher person of nobility doesn't keep their place in the feudal system things start to crumble. So yes. if you don't have your knights being valorous, they are very susceptible to public opinion and, you know, being called out for it. Yes, dishonor and shame, and that will affect them equally as much as, say, your noble barbarian. Yeah. Honor to a paladin is tantamount and paramount. And that's the next, after valor, is honor. You know, you always have to keep one's word. You mm. must maintain one's principles, never betray or confide... Uh, never, uh, sorry, never, uh, betray or, uh, you know, give up a comrade, avoid deceit and respect life. Mm -hmm. And with those, like, if, if you do any of those, you are very quickly not seen as honorable. Indeed. There's a little bit more leeway for forgiveness and understanding if you are apologetic in the act of doing so. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a way to kind of skirt and toe the line of honorability honorableness true i will set a 40k example in the form Mm -hmm. of lionel johnson primarch of the dark angels who were kind of the knights of 40k and 30k back in the great crusade when he was talking to the night lords primarch conrad kurz who was trying to sway the lion over to the side of horus and they went off and had a walk and talk together and the lion came back and had a very grim composure about him Mm -hmm. and kurz asked him so what do you think brother and Lion pauses and says, forgive me. And Kurt's like, for what? Such a dishonorable blow. And then draws his sword and stabs him. <laughs> Skirting the line of honorable combat, but at least gave him enough heads up to be like, oh, to at least know that he's about to get shanked. Yeah. And I mean, it 
it's it's an important thing to remember that you know you must declare your war you must that that's a big part of the feudal system was we have to declare our war before we can even start raising troops and yes there's protocols and rules and things that must be adhered to in order for other things to happen subsequently yeah funny enough cloak um, and dagger is very much a no-no up until world war like two it was still very frowned upon to raise armies before you declared war mm -hmm. that's part of the reason why the u.s went into war against japan is they had only sent the telegram like minutes before they attacked that they were that they'd uh, declared war on the u.s it was minutes after the attack yeah even known. because of some it was a it was a uh, delay of communication and yeah. timing because they hadn't accounted for the time difference the time zone mm -hmm. difference and so it was supposed to be here's the declaration of war and then the attack happens yeah. that's how it was supposed to go and they did it and that was the plan for it to happen but but it messed up sending the telegram yes and didn't arrive until after and hmm. yeah big no no but unintentional sure yeah but and in the Middle Ages, funny enough, to even declare war, you needed a casus belli, a reason for war. Because if you didn't have a casus belli, that is the quickest way to get, you know, excommunicated. Yes, and it had to be a very good reason for war. Mm. By their standards. By their standards. By our standards, they'd seem rather silly more often than not, I believe. Uh, my third cousin has claimed to the throne, and... Eh. War. Yep. Assemble the army! The next part, um, courtesy, yeah. you know, you must exhibit manners, be polite and attentive, be respectful of host, authority, and women. And be well-spoken. Yep. Paladins will be very eloquent individuals. Yeah. And so, then, uh, break out a thesaurus, boys and girls. And then, lastly, loyalty to God, sovereign, country, and the code of chivalry. Indeed. And if nothing else, to comrades. Because, friendly reminder, if your knightly opponent is not you know, using the code of chivalry, you don't have to either. Right. That is, it's it's sort of like the Geneva Conventions, where if your opponent hasn't signed the Geneva Convention, you don't have to use the Geneva Convention. Yes, a little grim fun fact for us there about yeah. uh, laws of war and potential committing of war crimes, if they're not, but here it, we go. It, yeah. I if mean, they haven't signed the convention, it's not a crime. It's the whole, you know... If, if you promise not to use it, we promise not to use it either. But if you don't, then, well, we will. Yeah. We, if you don't promise not to use it and use it, then we'll use it right back at you. Mm -hmm. So, you you know, if you don't promise to accept yields and give yields when, or give quarter when yielded to, I won't either. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to why I kind of like the Hedge Knights, um, they can adhere to the Code of Chivalry at face value, but they're a little less so following it because... That's generally where you'll see a little bit more multi-classing, like sure. if your knight has a crossbow. That is a big no-no under the Code of Chivalry. Ranged weaponry is dishonorable. However, if you're a hedge knight, you know, you're kind of towing that line of whether you're or not... You're in the chivalrous gray area. Yeah. If one can be said to exist. Technically, it can't, but you know, yeah. you're a hedge knight. What the fuck do you care? Um, another important thing is if you are a paladin, um, you know... If, if you get a requested duel, that is something you probably want to take up. It is very poor form to decline a duel challenge. Unless, you know, it doesn't have a whole lot of... Like, if a peasant right. asks you to duel, you are... If you win, you beat a peasant. If you lose, you got beat by a peasant. It's a lose-lose. Right. right, the duel has to make sense. Yeah. That's why, you know... um, 
in the first the first saga of our current D&D campaign when the honorous knight challenged the you know prince to a duel that is actually pretty you know the the prince should be inclined to take up that duel the grounds were there yeah that's why i you know i Gave started endless shit for declining yeah. cuz you know if the the yellow belly bastard yeah the knight you know had good reason to think he wasn't a prince and the prince should have good reason to defend his honor like of course i'm a prince i'll i'll accept your duel to prove that i am i mean later that's the princely thing to do but at least later we found out he wasn't actually a prince so it makes more sense that he declined it but still yeah you know you gotta keep be a lot, up appearances right because if you lose then you've lost honorably and maintained the appearance of being princely yeah even a lot of times, a lot many duels weren't to, to the death in the Middle Ages, no. as you see in like Victoria right. eras. I mean, it was you you fight until you know the someone yielded until someone yielded. It's going to until one of you realized that you weren't be able you weren't going to best your opponent. You know, if you saw you know you fought you fought and you saw that oh I couldn't actually kill this person if I really wanted to. They're yeah. a better fighter than I. You you throw up your hands. I yield. And if you fight, and if the person kills you after you yield, that's when you have your second stand-up. Yes, and kill the shit out of them, because the person yep. that just killed you will be rather tired from the duel. Yep. <clears throat> Funny enough, like, uh, that's, like, with dueling etiquette, each one of you should bring a second, because you don't just duel without one. Right. Because then someone might not follow the rules. Like, and, uh, in, and even if, you know, an accidents, genuine 100% honest accidents do happen, people do get hurt, and your second will be there to tend to you. Yeah. Um, besides, someone's got to carry all your shit. Yeah. Hold, hold the pistol boxes and mm -hmm. start piling all the potential things you might need for a duel. Just... My lord, I'm not your Sherpa. Funny enough, um, Andrew Jackson got into a lot of duels. Yeah, he did. President my... Andrew Jackson got yeah. into duels as president. Yeah. Yeah. One of, one of the most brutal ones, he got into a pistol duel and, uh, they, took the 10 paces, turned, fired the first person, like Andrew Jackson waited for the first person to fire. He missed, took several steps forward and just executed him. And there was no, and being just Andrew Jackson being a just lunatic, there was an assassination attempt on the man. And he the pistol jammed and he was, Andrew Jackson's nickname was Old Hickory because he carried around a substantial Hickory walking stick. His bodyguards had to pull him off his would-be assassin. Cause because he, was, he nearly beat him to death. Yeah, he was in genuine danger of committing homicide. <laughs> nearly beat him to death with his walking stick. Oh, my God. His, those bodyguards weren't for his protection. When, when you look back at, like, some history, you're like, wow, people were... They were it was made a out fucking of, circus. They, they, made, they were made out of a different, a different like... Uh, made fucking, of sterner stuff. Just like a paladin should be. Yeah. On the note of honor and unfailing... Un, un, Faltering bravery and such like that. When it, well, what does a paladin do when faced with a potential last stand or a kind of forlorn, ho forlorn hope defense situation? Uh, stand their ground, not one step back. Yep. They will go down swinging and reap a fearsome tally on the way if they should die. And they will not fear it in the slightest. They won't revel in it like I, like a barbarian might. Mm -hmm. A mighty end to their saga. They'll be, well, they'll do their duty in what needs to be done, in rather mel melancholy sort of way. Yeah. They won't revel in it. They'll fight to their last breath, 
And when they die, they'll be mournful, not because they're dying, but because they can't keep fighting the good fight. Yeah. And that's that's an important thing to remember is... I, I always characterized paladins overall is a little bit more of a suicidal class because they will be somewhat more inclined to take the positions that are doomed. Yes. That is... That is a hundred percent knightly honor. Yes, you you know if it to even volunteer, you know paladins they they want to be in the vanguard. They want to be you know in the at the way back of a retreating army or at the mm, the vanguard of the rear guard of a yeah. retreating of an attacking army, the rear guard of a retreating army. They want to be first in, last out. Because I mean, uh, if and if nothing else, they want to buy time for as many people to get to safety as possible. Like, uh, with Charlemagne, um, there's an epic ballad written about one of his knights that was the rear guard hmm. when they were retreating out of Spain. Yes. And it is a full, it's, it's like a, I, I swear, like a 50, 100 page ballad oh. on this one knight who died tragically at the rear guard of, Sh uh, Charlemagne's army. Just buying time. Buying time. And... But that was an important thing to remember is... That's a paladin to a T. Yeah. Is if, you're, if, the, if your dice are kind to you, mm -hmm. your paladin will survive such encounters if they're not particularly climactic in terms of story arc. Yeah. But perhaps don't get too particularly attached to that paladin as an ongoing thing through multiple campaigns because you, well, you don't give ground if there's ground to potentially be given. Yeah. And, I mean, it's it's a fun thing to play because, as we've done a podcast before on character building, plan for a good death. Yes. Paladins are kind of the pinnacle of, you know, they, at some point, usually at the end of their character life, they will get into an epic last stand. Yes. If, if done right. And it's something to be excited for because that is kind of like the shining moment for your paladin. Witness me! Yeah. And... You know, overall, it's, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a fun little trope about them is yeah. that they they are a bit more of the suicidal of the classes. And even if it's not deliberately so, yeah. they're just so fierce that the only way they're going to give ground is if they're dead. Yeah, they're not deliberately seeking to die. No, they just do their duty to the absolute last. Space Marines are a great example of this for forty yeah. K fans. How many times do you read in a forty K story? You know, a group of, you know, squad, you know, tactical squad, or just a group of five against ludicrous odds. That, you know, it's very clear that they're probably not going to win. And if they do, there's going to be one guy barely left standing. Mm -hmm. And more often than not, they all die. Yeah. If there's not, if it's not going to be an ongoing novel series. If it's a short story, if a last stand presents itself, they die. Heroic, noble sacrifice. And, and but that, they die hard. And that's kind of... Even going back to, like, their definition, they are champions of a cause. Yep. And if their cause cannot win this day, neither can they. Right. It's it's kind of awesome. I, I love last Paladins, dance. And it goes into the uncompromising moral conviction mm -hmm. that a paladin has. That's why it's a very big deal for a paladin to fall from grace if you're playing that particular kind of setting. Yeah. If you f stray from your alignment too egregiously... And your chosen lady that you pledge yourself to, if you're a uh, religious paladin, sees that you have strayed too far and isn't a particularly forgiving deity, you fall from grace. Yeah. Because and you've the, compromised your moral convictions egregiously. And the only way to fix that is to basically die. Mm -hmm. 
atonement. Re uh, redemption through blood, whether it's yours or the enemy's. You prove that you, it was a momentary straying from your convictions by dying, sticking to them exponentially so than you had in your life as a paladin prior to. Mm -hmm. I mean, going back to the Valor, which is most of the Book of Chivalry, never abandon a friend, ally, or noble cause. Aragorn's a great example of a paladin, honestly, because he starts off as a ranger, sure, mm -hmm. he's very much, you know, ranger type when he shows up, but in terms of morality and standpoint and his personality mm -hmm. and conviction and mindset, he is very much a paladin. Yeah. He could, at the end of the, you know, when Frodo and Sam go off into Mordor alone, after the breaking of the Fellowship, he could very well have decided, well, there's another boat here, we're just going to go after them and continue the quest. But he realized that that was not the right moral choice, that was not the right choice, because Mary and Pippin have been taken prisoner. Mm -hmm. they, and he's like, we cannot abandon them to torment and death. Yeah. So they go out, he takes Legos and goes off on an epic hunt. And even though they don't directly rescue them, it's still the mindset. And at the Battle of the Black Gate, Aragorn specifically, when, at least in the movies, when they're being encircled, or beginning to be encircled, mm -hmm. and he gives that speech, you know, you know, they may come when the courage of men fails, all sort of thing, but it's not this day. This day we fight, we stand our ground for what's right and good in this world. Mm -hmm. That's paladin to a T. Yeah, and I mean, that's the one thing that is kind of ubiqu uh, ubiquitous about all paladins, is that they are going to have that unwavering devotion at the end. Like, whether it's a hedge knight, a royal paladin, a zealous paladin, a black knight, a white knight, they they all have that urge to follow their, you know, cause to the end. Or some sort of strong moral conviction. Another good example is the film Kingdom of Heaven. Mm -hmm. Orlando Bloom's character sticks to the knightly code of chivalry to a T. But when Jerusalem comes under siege, he's not holding it to hold it. He's holding it just long enough to get the offer of terms on the table. And his terms are, uh, you take your army away, or I will tear the city to the ground myself to deny it to you. And the terms offered in response are, sure, you might, but there are women and children and old men and the sick in that city. If you tear them down too, I offer them safe passage if you yield the city to both you and your warriors and knights, all of them, to safe passage to other Christian lands. And he takes it, because that is what the knight does. He protects mm -hmm. the innocent. That's the moral conviction. Like, all right. Deal. Yeah. Moral, con strong moral convictions. Like, yes, he wants to do what is right by the crusade, crusade objectives, which is holding the city of Jerusalem. But he also understands that that much more conflicts with protect the moral standpoint of protecting the innocent, which is a knight's duty. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at it, like he's even taking steps to try to protect the innocent of the women and the children. But, you know, that's that's something that you'll even see with like Black Knights or, and, you know, Warhammer Fantasy Chaos Knights. They allow the women and children to escape the and city. And that one particular yeah. instance, Jacob, that was what made it special. That didn't typically happen very often. No, but it's just kind of calling out to... It's a nod to it. Yes, I yeah. understand. Yes. The because even lawful evil... Yes. If if they follow the chivalrous code, they're going to generally... In that particular case, in the, the yeah. champion of Corn, that's a, its own uh, strange, abstract version of this code, of a colder chivalry, but I can... Yeah. Yes. It still stands as a lawful evil standpoint. Mm-hmm. Listen, I'm here to pillage and burn, but I only want to pillage and burn and fight against the good warriors. So get the ones who wouldn't be good good warriors out of the city. I'll give them safe passage. 
go. Funny enough, though, unlike the the bar, I mean, un, unlike the barbarians, typically paladins and bar uh, bards can, you know, get into a bit of a tussle over, you know, singing about their honors and stuff like that. Sure. Because it's... Knights are humble. Yeah. They, if, you know, if you're not playing like a royal paladin, royal paladins might, you know, kind of like the bard. The poets sing your praises. Yes, because I pay them. <laughs> But, I mean, generally, a paladin, it's kind of frowned upon to be too boastful. Or even to really shine light on your own deeds, because you want them to speak for themselves, rather than yeah. have anyone speak the, speak of them for you. Yeah. Now, barbarians toe the line a little bit, but we already talked about that, you know. Yeah. They want the, the tale of their epic saga to be told, just not, too, they just don't want it to be embellished yeah. inaccurately. They want it to be told, to anyone will hear, but accurately. Mm -hmm. Whereas knights are just like... I'll let my deeds speak for themselves. My reputation will precede me. I don't need you to sing some song about me, bard. Now, one thing about paladins, too, that I think should be implemented more. Paladins are, gen since they are knights, are generally more wealthy. Sure. Uh, the one funny thing about, like, our D&D &D group, the uh, DM, like, originally started off doing very realistic. Mm -hmm. So he gave... Um, you know, the man-at-arms who was a knight in one of the neighboring kingdoms, his retirement, which was 10 gold pieces. <clears throat> which, I mean, would is pretty accurate for what he was trying to go for. Sure. He's still not right out of that money. Uh, again, he's, accurate. He's bought 10 gold pieces goes armor. a long way. Yeah. Now, it's like every time people were like, fuck, I'm broke. And he's like, yeah, I still have six gold left. And we're like, how the fuck do you have so much fucking money? Because I got paid in gold, not copper. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Now, another note on there... Paladin specifically is that they are like ninety percent of the time gonna be the face of the party. They're going to be the yeah. party leader because they are leaders of others by their very nature. And at face value, it's good to have them as the leaders because they are honor, honorous, you know, virtuous. You know, they are if the, if they're if they're adhering to their codes properly. People, pe people, people. No, yeah. I was gonna say people person. Well, people persons works too, but they're. Substantially more sociable than, or sorry, more acceptably sociable than the barbarian or the rogue or the bard or what have you. Mm -hmm. They can walk, they can speak and walk at all walks of life to all and be yeah. listened to and heard. Specifically heard. It's one thing to be listened to, but to be heard. Bar Paladins will always be heard. Yeah. They're typically not your most street smart people, but they are intelligent. They are sometimes brutally naive. Not well, naive, brutally idealistic and just... Because they themselves abide by abide to the principle of being paragons of moral altruism, sometimes they don't quite realize that not everyone's quite like that. They they but exist again, in their own utopia mindset. Right, but then the other point is they that may not always have to be the case. Yeah, paladins can be street. Could very, a paladin could very well be street smart because he understands that he is the exception of human altruism rather than the rule. He understands that not everyone is as upstanding as he, and so he's on careful watch out for being double-crossed or taken advantage of or led astray or into danger or what have you, misled, yeah. lied to. He'll be a bit more keen, have a bit more of a keen eye. Perhaps not uh, be as knowledgeable as to the specifics and whether there's a wide or as, you know, say, a rogue mm -hmm. or a thief or even a bard might. But he could be easily as capable of spotting at least the inherent signs of. Which is actually kind of why I like the Hedge Knight, because he can have backgrounds in a lot of other things, or he could have just been living on off the land for quite a while, so he knows 
how kind of, you know, real life works. Right. Um, if you want to, like, a good example of a fun way to pr play a traditional knight, uh, look no further than the knight in our party, Manolo. He is intelligent, charismatic, and a good warrior, but he doesn't have a whole lot of street smarts. Mm. Doesn't have, you know, a whole lot of... Uh, perception-based skills mm. he, he's he's your painfully naive yeah he's painfully naive but he's a good guy he means well he has his unwavering you know cause to the one true light in the universe right. and it's uh, a little noise some you know creates a little friction here and there but that's also an important point of the paladin is that yes he's got these upstanding morals or whatever but that's going to clash with others yeah and that's kind of part of the point to encourage and engage role playing interestingly enough like Paladins are kind of the sandpaper of your party. As soon as you get a little bit of resistance, it's a good indicator that those are the bad guys. Right. They're a good barometer for evil. Yeah. Even Weirdly enough, even when they're not in the form of Black Knights or Fallen Paladins, what have you, if they take rather kindly to someone whether, rather than being like, oh, good two-shoes, then it's like, Oh, that's someone that that person's not on the up and up. The paladin, the fallen paladin likes them. The black knight likes them. Yeah, they're not on the up and up. We should keep an eye on them. That's a, also see what I, what's pull the thread. This seems like plot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, like I I'd, I'd go as far to say you know even some of like your black knights and stuff like that, they they might be fighting for evil, but. You gotta remember, the Book of Chivalry, you can't give up on your cause or your lord. Indeed not. Now, if your lord or your cause dies, you might find an ally in that Black Knight or that evil paladin. Mm. Because they still, they follow their Book of Chivalry. Sometimes right. they won't give up their lord because, you know, as long as that lord's living... They are he, sworn to him, they've yeah. sworn their service, and sure, they might be a Black Knight, but they they have honor of a sort. They've sworn their service, they won't break that oath. Yeah. But if... The, Oath should be broken for them in the form of the person they've sworn to it being dead. They're no longer bound by the oath. Yeah. It could be just as simple as that. Kill the thing binding them to their oath and they become much more agreeable. Yeah. No, interestingly enough, on Black Knights, you know, since you mentioned, you know, either, you know, not quite a shining or gray armor. On the little 40k, gray knights, the gray knights, the demon hunters. Yes, they are paragons of, paragons of all that is pure and good and holy. In the eyes of the Imperium, the op the complete opposite, the mm -hmm. polar opposite, the antithesis of chaos of for and the forces of ruination, the chaos, chaotic powers. But they do things that are definitely not on the moral up and up in terms of exterminating entire planets' populaces yeah. in order to prevent the spread of chaos. That is devotion to a cause, which is prevention to the which is the causes of fighting the forces of chaos. But they don't care how. But it doesn't matter to them in what way that war needs to be fought they will sacrifice billions and tri upon trillions if it means that the forces of chaos do not get a grip on more of humanity than absolutely can be prevented which i'd argue is why they have gray armor they have silver armor pure yeah but their morality gray yeah because they want to do what's right for the imperium as a whole but not for the imperium's populace yeah per se just an interesting thing that clicked in this conversation. Yeah. And you can also tell a lot about a knight depending on what his armor is. If it's steel, he's your standard run-of-the-mill knight. Um, if it's gold, he's generally royalty. And also that armor is useless. Yeah. 
gold armor is terrible. Gold, a lot of things, is kind of terrible. Gold's not it's a soft. Great, it's not a great metal. I mean, it's great for audio engineering and audio work and audio quality. It's conductive. But that, but it's not great for anything else. Um, that's why generally if you have gold, arm, it's gold plated. Right. Um, I mean, you also have like brass armor and which mm-hmm. is arguably almost as bad as gold. Same with silver. Yeah. The Bronze only... ain't bad. What? Bronze ain't bad. It's all a matter of how it's shaped. Yeah. Because a, con- because a concave is still a concave. It'll deflect it's soft well. though. Yes. It won't deflect as well as steel, but the point. Brass is better than bronze. Sure. Sure. It's heavy though. Yes. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. The only thing silver is good for is killing werewolves. <laughs> or paying off Vikings. Vikings weren't a he- didn't prioritize gold. Hmm. They found silver things to be much more valuable and could sell for a higher price in their own markets. Gold, you know, would fetch a price, but silver. They wanted silver. Interestingly enough on this topic, you know why gold is partially so valuable? Go on. Doesn't corrode. Yes. Which, I mean, silver even gets, like, corrodes. Doesn't corrode or doesn't, and it doesn't tarnish. Yeah. Gold doesn't, pure gold, at a certain purity level, doesn't tarnish. Because you get gold plated and, you know, it gets a little... There's very few things that react with gold. Right. There's a couple acids and that's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, it's a good way to store your wealth, because it's never gonna rust away. Fucking rot. Whereas iron... It's got a shelf life. If it's not properly cared for. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, shit, I need to, I need to oil my axe. It's due. Yeah. Um, also, one interesting thing about knights, too, is they they are still very, very good fighters. Yes. People often assume, like, knights are kind of these lumbering tanks that aren't flexible. And, and to a degree they are. They're wearing, like, what, 70, 80 pounds of pure armor? They still wear less weight than our current soldiers wear. Sure. But 70, 80 pounds of weight is still 70 pounds... 80 pounds of additional weight that they need to move around. But it's well distributed. <laughs> That's true, one thing about true. armor. People don't realize weight distribution matters. Because if you have 80 pounds just on your shoulders, that's going to be terrible. But if you have 80 pounds, you know, you have like 5 pounds on your shins. You have, you know, another 5, 10 pounds on your torso. And it's right. well distributed. And They're well articulated, you'll be able to move well enough. Perhaps not as quick of a reaction time if you were wearing something lighter, but yeah, trade-offs. And also, also gives you the nice trade-off of you yourself are as much of a weapon as your weapon. Yeah. If you are plated in in metal. And it's also important to remember that knights, while they do preferred swords, they do use a wide variety of weapons. Yes. Granted, you know, swords is kind of like the hallmark. The hallmark. It it's, is the hallmark. It's the most noble thing. The long to use. sword, the bastard sword, would have you the hand and half specifically. Mm-hmm. That is the hallmark of a knight. But they also use, like, war hammers, they use pikes, um, they use spears, lances. They, they you have a wide battle variety. here and there. Yeah. Yeah. War picks. War picks, for sure. That's another fun one that is But that is used. after, so those kind of weapons, you know, the axes and hammers and picks and stuff like that, came into prevalence, I believe, after the quote-unquote death of chivalry, because the knights were, were given free reign to slaughter each other. I mean, and also with your pikes... For punching through plate armor. They're just not. Depends on how you use them. Depends on how you use them. Because. But requires a bit more finesse. Whereas if you're using, I don't know, a battle axe or <laughs> a pike or a hammer. Even if you hit your. Even if you don't kill your opponent. If you land a decent enough blow with one of those weapons. You've made it much more difficult for them to maybe just breathe by denting their chest plate. Yeah. Even if it hasn't cut through all the armor. It's still 
punch, punch the chest plate and it made it hard for them to breathe properly and fully or even move particularly yeah. well, you've reduced the effectiveness in the, of their armor and perhaps even turned them against them a bit. Or if you hit, like, a, you know, like a joint in their armor, can, they can't bend you know, it maneuver. as much. Yeah, it's, it. yep. And a lot of people don't think that knights have a martial art, but there is their own martial art. Because a lot of times with knights fighting knights, you use your swords for a little bit to tire each other out, and then you generally go into a brawl on the ground. Yes. It, after the death of chivalry, of course, you're trying to go for, you know, a dagger or something to stick between, you know, their el uh, the armpits or their groin, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, into the visor of their face mask. Yes. Um... It's, it's interesting to see. Also, with, like, the rise of peasants getting more and more armored as you go on. Yes, they need the way to deal with that as well. Yeah. This is that could be in a completely different topic for general nerd sense. Yeah, but it's just... Nightly weaponry, but just as a frame of reference for you budding paladins out there. Yeah. Combat styles, what have you. If you're using more of a homebrew and can actually incorporate this sort of thing. Yeah. Or if you even want to float it by your GM, if you're not using that homebrew, like, hey, I want to do a paladin, but I want to do it, you know, a bit more historically accurate. We'll study up on the... Or just fluffy ways, too. You know, like, if too. you kill someone... How... If you want to just describe how you're doing it. Yeah. That's all about role-playing. Because it, it's interesting when you start to look at, like, the history and how weapons are used. Like, maces have a lot of finesse to them. Oddly enough, yes. Yeah. As much as something is just being a club is you know you still gotta use it in the right ways you know you want to go for the wrists to knock out your opponent's weapon and break their wrists so they can't swing back the you knee go joints for, then you go for the knees you knock them down and then you just hit the helmet in mm -hmm. yep. very effective way to fight as a paladin no paladin doesn't mean prissy and finesse and no showy you can be just as brutal as your party barbarian as a paladin it's it's the middle ages everything were everything was brutal Yes. Yes, it was. So, you know, have some fun with your paladin. Indeed. Take a lot of references from other mediums, make them add a little bit of brutalness to, to your liking. and Yeah, and then, you know, it's fair to say it, that, you know, there's not as much synergy with the other party members yeah. as the barbarian might have, but that's not to say that the paladin can't work well enough with others yeah if he couldn't then he wouldn't be a staple he's he's a paladins in my opinion are still a little bit more two-dimensional than say like barbarians but that doesn't mean that they, they don't can't have their be. place they, they, and also doesn't mean yeah. that they can't be it's just as three-dimensional it's just mm -hmm. it requires a bit more effort in the right and a yeah. bit more attention to the backstory because the paladin you cannot skimp on that backstory no if you want to fleshed out three-dimensional character with with medieval history as as a whole you know family histories are important they're it's not as important as like far eastern with like uh the samurai and samurai and stuff like that but it's important to know like what what titles pardon. you have what merits you have what honorable deeds have you done in the past? What battles have you fought in? Your paladin's lineage and legacy are supremely important. Yeah. Supremely important. So just a great deal of things. It's food for thought for you aspiring paladins out there. Mm -hmm. And it's also cool cool enough. There's a couple different ways to become a knight. You could have been like a squire and gone through the ranks of nobility. You could have been made a knight on the battlefield for valorous combat. So there is some room to where your character came from, how to do his Indeed. backstory. Did you start mm -hmm. off as... He like doesn't a, have to be born into it. Yeah. Did you start off as a peasant and... Earn it. And earned it through valorous combat. Saving standing. the life of another knight who then yeah. took you up as a squire and noticed that you were particularly talented in the martial ways, so decided to personally teach you. Yeah. 
Or do you want to be, you know, nobility who's raised from a very young age for the codes of conduct and, you know, who acts very good as a political figure? Yes. Still, you know, yeah. paladins can be two-dimensional, but they still can be very three-dimensional. It's all about that backstory, as with so many characters. And a good way to find that backstory is just consume a lot of medium. As always. Look at history. Take a lot of examples from history. Take, you know, historic, like, fiction, like, you know, King Arthur. Mm-hmm. with his knights or look at charlemagne and the legacies thereof and also remember sci-fi fans yeah. space marines are paladins yep both loyalist and chaos space marines are paladins of two different stripes interesting with you look at the space marines and it seems like each one of them covers their own point of chivalry indeed so yeah indeed so but i think that'll about do it unless you have any parting thoughts mr no. jacob that's pretty much it all right then aspiring paladins hopefully we have armed you and equipped you with enough knowledge to make your foray into paladining the world of paladins particularly effective, or if you're an experienced paladin, hopefully we have given you some more interesting things to think of to keep things fresh and entertaining for you and your party. But in any case, noble and honorable shield bearers, thank you so very much for listening once again, and if you've got any future suggestions or requests for other archetypes you would specifically like to hear us talk about on General Nurses or topic requests for either just generally, General Nurses or Loose Brews or Lore Council, head on over to our Facebook page, Shield Wall Productions, on Facebook.com, or... Or hit us up on Twitter at the official SWP, whether or not you want to ask questions about paladins or talk about paladin characters you've played before, or just want to shoot the shit and talk, I'm more than happy to do that as well. And wherever you're listening to us, too, be it iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podcast, wherever, don't forget to subscribe if you're not subscribed already, and until next time, we shall catch you later. Doodles!